a moment of prayer as we stand. The world has its own idea of wisdom and of power. But you, our God, have your idea of what counts as wisdom and what counts as power. And you have declared your wisdom and shown your power in the cross of your dear son, Jesus Christ. Teach us what it means. Teach us what it means to glory in the cross of Christ and to know nothing among us save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amen. Please do be seated. It happened to some of the ancient pharaohs of Egypt. It happened to some of the popes. In slightly more recent times, it happened to Napoleon, to Stalin, to Lenin, and to Saddam Hussein. Each of them, in uh, different ways, built up some kind of kingdom or empire and had one or more statues erected to honor them as emperors, as kings, and then at some point before or after their own death, they fell into disfavor and the statues came tumbling down. We seem in our Bible reading tonight to have a kingdom and its king come crashing down. Would you please open a Bible at Matthew chapter 27, page 999 would be a good place to aim for. Eugene read for us uh, verses um, 32 on to verse um, 56. I'm actually going to extend my comments this evening a little bit further back than that. So just be mindful, I'm going to be pointing out some uh, uh, verses that go back as far as um, verse 11 of that chapter. So we're bearing in mind some of the things leading up to the execution of Jesus Christ. Uh, His trial before the Roman, um, uh, the, the Roman Pilate, the mockery of Jesus by the Roman soldiers, and then the crucifixion itself, and then the death of Jesus. We're bearing in mind that sequence of events. Now, this idea then of a kingdom and of a king is actually very prominent in Matthew's gospel. Right back in the very first verse of chapter 1, Jesus is introduced to us in a number of ways, including as the son of David, the son of King David. In chapter 2, the wise men, the magi, turn up and they ask in Jerusalem. And their question is, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? In chapter 3, both John the Baptist and Jesus himself announce 
the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. In chapter 5, Jesus teaches in the Beatitudes that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit and to those who are persecuted. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches us as part of the Lord's Prayer to pray to God, your kingdom come. And then we are taught in, also in the Sermon on the Mount to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. In chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus taught the parables of the kingdom. In chapter 16, he tells Peter, the disciple Peter, that he will give him the keys of the kingdom. And in that same chapter, Jesus speaks of himself as the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. In chapter 19, Jesus welcomes little children, declaring that the kingdom belongs to such as these. And then on what uh, the, 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 the day that we celebrate as Palm Sunday, when Jesus enters in humble triumph into Jerusalem to fulfill the words of the prophet Zechariah. See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey. So we have this great build-up throughout Matthew's gospel of the kingdom and its king. What an anticlimax then, now to reach chapter 27, as they set about executing the king and demolishing his kingdom. Look with me in this chapter at the hammer blows that are aimed at this fragile kingdom, the hammer blows that will bring it crashing down. Six hammer blows to point out to you. Number one, the hammer blow of political expediency. Pilate, the representative of one of the most advanced legal systems in the world, uh, 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 that the world has ever seen, Pilate fudges the whole thing. Knowing, verse 23, that Jesus has done no wrong, Pilate nevertheless, verse 26, hands him over to his accusers. He fudges the whole thing up. Political expediency. Anything for a quiet life. Anything to get this mob off my back. Number two, the hammer blow of mob rule. Never never underestimate the willingness of a crowd of people, especially, of course, a crowd of men, to get aggressive and violent. Now, I don't know how many people in this Good Friday crowd, screaming, crucify him, in verse 22, had also been in the Palm Sunday crowd, singing Hosanna. For all I know, they may have been different crowds of people. But, you know, public opinion is a very fickle thing. And public adulation has turned to public hatred in less than a week. Number three, the hammer blow of brutalizing force. 
verses 27 and following. The soldiers mock him as king. They beat him up and they strip him naked. Number four, the hammer blow of desertion by his friends. Already denied by Peter, denied by Peter, Peter the one who'd promised that he would never forsake his master, already betrayed by Judas, another of the twelve, now no one is left even to help him to carry his own cross. Verse 32. A stranger is forced to do so. It's just the women, verse 55, who watch for, from a distance, appalled and dismayed, waiting, no doubt, for an opportunity to give him at least a decent burial. Number five, the hammer blow of religious bigotry. Those religious people who should have known their own scriptures better, who should have understood the hand and the work of God better, fail miserably. In fact, look at verse 41. There's a full listing there of the Jewish leaders. And that full listing, it seems to me, emphasizes the total rejection of Jesus by official Judaism. And then number six, the hammer blow of divine abandonment. Verse 46. Jesus seems to have at that moment no words of his own, so he reaches back to one of the Psalms, Psalm Psalm 22 and the first verse, and borrows words first uttered by David, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Political expediency, mob rule, brutalizing force, desertion by his friends, the victim of religious bigotry, and also of divine abandonment. Six hammer blows bring the kingdom and its king crashing down. The king dies in verse 30, and his kingdom comes toppling down around him. But wait. Listen. Look. And feel what's happening. Look. The sky is growing darker and darker. It's midday. But the sky is growing darker and darker. Verse 45. Just as the light of a strange star shone over Bethlehem to herald his birth, so an uncanny darkness falls over Calvary at the time of his death. Coincidence? I don't think so. And then, if you were around to hear it, you'd hear a great tearing sound. The great curtain of the temple is being ripped from top to bottom. Verse 51. That barrier that has shut men and women 
out of the presence of God so that only one person, the high priest, could enter into the Holy of Holies once a year and then not without great ceremony and sacrifice. That barrier is ripped down and the presence of God has been opened up to all. And the ground underneath their very feet is shaking, verse 51. But here's an earthquake bringing not death, but life out of death. And here is one of the most uncanny, perhaps the most uncanny, I almost said spooky, miracles in the entire Bible. Because nearby, some of the tombs are breaking open. And before long, and the, um, just in case you're interested, the, uh, the, the translation of verse 53 could be that they didn't come out of the tombs, these occupants, at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, but rather at the time of his resurrection. That's the way it, it might read. But anyway, some of the tombs are breaking open before very long. The bodies of holy men and women inside are going to be walking and talking again. At the very moment of Jesus' death, life, new life, resurrection life, is beginning to break forth. As earth does its, uh, it does its worst, heaven is giving its verdict. Even though Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God was actually not standing by, silent and motionless. He was in it all along, as the Apostle Paul will later explain. God in the cross, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. God was giving up his son, Romans chapter 8, for us all. And these events, these events from heaven, supernatural darkness, uh, a supernatural tearing of the curtain, a supernatural earthquake and breaking open of tombs, tells us that God is actually very much involved in all that's going on. And in fact, everything is not at all what it seems to be. In fact, you know, this chapter is dripping with irony. Irony in the sense that everything is actually not at all what it appears to be. Let me just outline for you five ironies, deep and profound and meaningful, as I believe them to be. Number one, the irony of who is really on trial here. Jesus, who is ostensibly on trial, stands there and says and does virtually nothing. He refuses even to defend himself, back to verse 12. Because, you see, it's not really Jesus at all who is on trial, but Pilate, the Jewish leaders, 
the crowd, and we ourselves. Number two, the irony of the choice that is made between Barabbas and Jesus Christ. Verse 17, you know that Barabbas was a notorious criminal. Jesus is an innocent man, and Pilate gives the crowd the choice. I can release one of them for you. Do you want me to release Jesus Christ? No, release Barabbas. Crucify Jesus Now, the deeper irony here is that some of the ancient, the oldest manuscripts of the New Testament give us Barabbas' full name. Barabbas, which means Barabbas, son of a father, is a surname. He would likely have a first name as well. And some of the old manuscripts of the New Testament tell us his name. And do you know his name in those manuscripts is Jesus. So in fact, what Pilate is then saying is, which Jesus do you want me to release? Jesus, the son of Abbas, or Jesus, who is called Christ? Understandably, the name of Jesus of Barabbas was suppressed, because after all, as um, Bible teacher Michael Green says, you couldn't have a criminal with the same name as Jesus, could you? Well, actually, yes, you could. That's the point of Jesus coming and identifying with sinners. On that Good Friday, the one ended up on the cross intended for the other. And the guilty man walked away free. Jesus took Barabbas' place. One Jesus took the place of another Jesus. And isn't that an amazing picture of what the cross of Christ means? Him in my place. He, my substitute. He taking, bearing the penalty that I deserved. Number three, the irony that everyone here speaks far more truly than they realize. See, just in verses 37 and and following, the exalted names and titles given to Jesus quite unwittingly by those around. He's called King of the Jews. He's called a temple builder. He's called Son of God. He's called King of Israel. He's called Son of God. They don't mean it at all, but they're right. They're true. He is all of these things. Number four. The irony that Jesus is even more of a king than he is accused of being. They are killing him for claiming to be king of Israel, king of the Jews. But he turns out to be king of heaven and earth. Before long, he'll be taking his leave of his disciples after his resurrection and he'll, be, uh, and he'll be speaking to them in the following terms. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Jesus is more of a king than even his accusers thought he was. Number five, the irony that all of this was the plan all along. 
things have not got gone dreadfully wrong with God's plan, and he's kind of tried to, to put it back on track again. This was the plan all along. Time and time again in the Gospels, Jesus himself has said to disciples, this is what must happen. Matthew 16. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. They scarcely took any notice of those words. They certainly certainly couldn't take them on the board. Peter was first to object vehemently uh, any idea that Jesus could die. And if they couldn't believe that Jesus could die, how could they possibly believe that he'd come back from from the dead? But he had said those things. He had warned them beforehand. A string, then, of ironies. The irony of who is really on trial here. The irony of the choice between Barabbas and Jesus. The irony that everyone is speaking far more truly than they could ever have realized. The irony that Jesus is much more of a king than even they thought he was. And the irony that this was God's plan all along. So the kingdom, after all, was never more alive than when its king died. For this is precisely the way things are in the kingdom of God. Back in chapter 20 of Matthew's Gospel, we are told that the mother of James and John, two of the disciples, approached Jesus with her two sons, asking that they, her sons, might be given the two most important jobs in Jesus' kingdom. When the other disciples hear about this, they're furious. No doubt they wanted the best jobs for themselves. So Jesus calls them all together and explains, they must all be like the Son of Man who didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So then we see that Jesus didn't come to get, but to give. He didn't come to give as little as possible, but as much as was needed. He didn't give grudgingly, but willingly. He didn't make a hopeful start and then give up, but rather he saw his task right through to the end. He didn't look for the approval of men. He looked for the approval of his heavenly Father. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. This is God's kingdom. This is our God. This is the servant king who calls us now to follow him and to give our lives as a daily offering of worship to this, our servant king. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you died, but you are alive. Not only alive, but ascended, glorified, reigning. But may we worship and serve you as our servant king. And may we, may we follow, however falteringly it may be, in your footsteps of loving, sacrificial service. And may we always rejoice that his death is life for us 
and for the world.